What's up, family? <sighs> it has been a better week. I can't quite say good. I definitely can't say great, but better. Better because I am starting to find a way to realize that the constant exhaustion that was taking my energy away from conversation that was disconnecting me from this opportunity to talk to all of you was the result of things that have been going on for years that conversations like this are intended to disrupt. So I'm back. I'm back feeling good and ready to go, ready to be. And I thank all of you that continue to come back every week to talk and be with me and be with us on this journey of providing a more equitable space for all people to see and be their human selves. I'm excited this week because we're going to find a way to be more than just great. We're going to find a way to be human. And if this is your first time tuning into Penciled In, welcome. You're going to be listening to a podcast that is driven by numbers, painted by story, and refusing to allow dialogue across difference to be erased by allowing our humanity to be more than penciled in. Let's go. Power on, power, power, power on. Uh, I, think, uh, I think my leadership... Uh, I think my leadership story starts with uh, being a young black man. Being a young black man that lived in two worlds. It's black down here. How the hell are we supposed to fight? That lived in two worlds. A young black man that lived in two worlds. Family, this is David Hardy Jr. Welcome to Penciled In. It is April 29, 2021. I'm excited for this conversation because it brings me back to my professional roots, education. This episode is so important to me that I felt the need to break it into two. One that starts with conversations around educational practices and the second one is about the politics that surround them. All of which lands at the doorstep of inequity that we see in education today. But if we really want to cut through the challenges we see today's episode will start the process for us to think about how school districts and states across the country can do things differently to change outcomes for kids who will be the first to leave our education system and interact with the world around them our high school students so let's go into this conversation with an open heart and open mind and realize the challenges that our kids face every single day and find ways change those outcomes. Let's go get it. I still can't really believe it. Partially because I still just don't understand. I remember a day in which I, I just took extra time for some reason driving towards my office, hoping to gain better understanding and believe what I was seeing. The soft, constant rain blurs my vision momentarily as I speed up my wipers to take a look at the rusted yet majestic looking steel mills that are far from functional. The mounds of steel and the history underneath them 
is nothing short of breathtaking for those that never experienced what it means to be in the Rust Belt. However, for so many, the combination of the nearly daily rain, gray skies, and emptiness symbolized by the rust of old hubs of employment has essentially numbed the common person of this dying city of any possibility, hope, opportunity, let alone expectations for something better. For me, after three years, I have become numb for a different reason. One that I, I just can't ignore. My mood shifts, unstable thinking takes place and leaves me on the brink of feelings that no person should have to feel. However, the rain continues to fall, making this morning drive harder, ever more isolated, each step I get closer to my destination. For those looking from the outside in, especially those that understand the challenge of changing outcomes of a failing, hopeless situation, you would think that my mood and the mood of those around me would be different, would be inspired to create the change that is necessary for America's children in this city. But then again, no one this city would have thought that their steel mills would turn to rust. No one would have thought that the proud history that they lean on as if it is present day would be erased. But when you infuse corruption, greed, and mere survival on the dinner plate every single day, it comes to no surprise what people will eat. But it wasn't something that I, that I wanted to ingest. Given the fact that this small city split right down the middle when they voted equally for Clinton and Trump in 2016, this meal of ancestrally bad behavior has devoured the possibility of people thriving, let alone surviving. There are so many tremendous people in this town. So many brilliant young minds, committed community members, people that care deeply about the well-being of their community. But in this county, in this city, in this world, we have become succumbed to the pressures of political gain at the cost of the marginalized, who are often black, brown. This story is not unique to this city, nor to leaders across this country who have sat in the same seat that I sat in, nor should it be something that is just penciled in. What is worse? As vividly unfortunate as this story may be, I quickly find out that this story is far from unique. It's just rarely told. Because let's be real, who's listening anyway? Black and brown lives only matter because the school systems in which majority of the black lives that live there give the city a glimmer of financial relevance that allows people to eat off the back of children. And what do they get in return? False hope, lies, and rust. Their lives have never mattered. And this story, the conversation we will have today, will begin to show you why.
Over the past 20 years of my life, I have seen a few things in education. The good, the bad, and everything in between. Before I go down that road, though, I have to first admit to all of you that I do not profess that I have all the answers or that I know everything about education because I don't. But I will also admit to you that I will never stop pursuing all of the answers that we need. I say this from a place of being in seats as a principal and someone who oversaw some of the lowest performing schools in the state of New Jersey as a chief academic officer in the Midwest and eventually a superintendent. And I continue to see patterns. I continue to see interactions that have created learning environments that are not only inequitable, but in my eyes, morally wrong. And for years I tried so hard to deeply understand and my urgency and my stubbornness for outcomes for kids, I know has rubbed a lot of people the wrong way along my journey. But there's something about seeing a bright young face with a ton of curiosity and hope, sitting in a space where they're not getting what they need. That just will never sit right with me. To the point where I've had tremendous mentors. One in particular was my boss a few years ago. He often refers to me as young man. He said, young man, there's still a lot that you need to learn. But there's one thing you will never fall short on. It's your care for kids. And I took that to heart because, yes, I do care deeply about young people. But I also care deeply about what we need to learn together to change outcomes for kids. And I would watch how he would work and how he would ensure things were moving. And I always sat in my head and sat there and watched and said, are we are we moving fast enough? And I know that he's probably listening right now and understands the conversations we used to have. Because what I see and what I continue to see across the country is that the challenges we face in education can change if we just spend more time thinking about the possibilities rather than the pitfalls. Because every time we try something new, there are going to be bumps in the road. But that something new is different and will be better for kids if we give it a try, in my humble opinion. And I was able to see that firsthand as a principal years ago in Brooklyn, where actually my first class of children from East New York Middle School will be graduating college in just a few weeks. And this feels special to me, because here are kids from East New York who will be going into the world seeing things hopefully with a few extra tools in their toolkit from the education they received from a team of people that cared about them so deeply in elementary and middle and high school I'm excited for what they will do to make this world a little bit better 
And as I think about the work that we as educators do, I think about the gravity, the power, the autonomy we have to create spaces that allow future generation adults to make impact on this world that will have a lasting imprint on what we see. So through this discussion, we will talk about how those tensions come to the forefront of what we see in education. The idea of slowing down to go fast, which I never quite understood. Or the idea that not right now is okay when it comes to kids who only have one shot in a specific grade. Or that we have to look at how this impacts the adults as well as the children. And yes, it's important. Our educators and leaders need to feel the buy-in and the direction. But I struggle when that comes in competition with the well-being of black and brown kids. Don't know what to do with that. But there's some things that I started to dig up, especially around our kids who are going into the world for the first time this year, either as high school seniors who are going off to college or maybe a career of their choice or college graduates who are leaving after they graduate in a few weeks to interact with the world made me question, are we doing our best job of preparing our kids in that last lap, that last set of years in which we have the ability to impress upon them the skills that they need to be successful? Are we doing everything that we could and need to be doing for them to be successful? Here's what I found. The high school graduation rate in the United States was 88% for the 2018-2019 school year, holding steady with the previous year's average. State graduation rates ranged from an average of 75% to 94% according to data reported by 17,608 ranked schools in the 2021 U.S. News Best High School rankings. To support the continued efforts in education, on Friday, March 27, 2020, the CARES Act, the Corona Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, was signed into law. And inside this $2 trillion package was $30.75 billion for an education stabilization fund. A team of leaders and civil servants at the department are currently working to ensure that those funds that were built into that legislation are adhered to, spent wisely, and put into place in response of Corona, but also to ensure a better future for our kids. Those four funds will help schools move education forward. The question will be, what will they do with it? Because there's this. I found a study, a report to be clear, 
outlined a case in which there are kids that are being told that they're graduating with a 0.13 grade point average. This child, according to the article, had only passed three classes in four years. But get this, was ranked near the top half of his class and was ranked 62 out of 120 in his class. My question then becomes many, but the one that starts running through my mind is, how does this happen? Well, here's a thought. When we look at grade point average and how students are graded, we're looking at a system that is antiquated and based in a ton of inequities that do not actually measure the well-being and the educational levels of our kids. Not only is GPA antiquated to the rate that performance of children can be defined by a number that is put into a grade book, too often the grading systems within school systems have less to do with what the child actually learned, more about how the system of the school thinks what good actually is. Furthermore, teachers have become so hamstrung by the rigors of unclear expectations it's a loss of creativity, spark, that they were once allowed to have and ultimately results that are now uninspiring our teachers. And the default has been the undereducation of kids in our country that needed the most. But way too often, black and brown kids who don't get what they need to be successful. This is a byproduct of a number of systems at play. The current atmosphere that our kids are learning in are absent of inspiration. They're full of alternative motivation. And unfortunately, politicizing the well-being of a child's education has become normal. For big money at the cost of young lives. We as adults love to look good rather loving to look for ways to become great for our kids to realize the good within themselves. I don't know how many times I have seen, been a part of, or witnessed decisions that were made to preserve something rather than pursue something greater. There are many fingers that could be pointed here because every story has a good villain. However, this chapter in America's education system is worth more than dwelling on horning one individual or a system that continues to underpromise our kids. But I do believe that it is true that there are two things that are working together in concert that have allowed our system to deepen its roots, what we have established as a system for kids that have, those that have not. We have villainized imagination driven by difference and have used capitalism as a driver for complacency. If we were to examine the depths of inadequate education happening to our children and look at the education that is happening to our children instead of for our children, 
a majority who are now children of color and make it analogous to healthcare systems in this country. We would realize that COVID-19 is not the first pandemic in the past 100 years. It is actually just the pandemic that has exposed the annual sickness that plagues our U.S. education system. The annual educational pandemic in this country has been ignored from an equity standpoint. Right at the point where we're seeing an unprecedented amount of money, one-time funding being pumped into bad learning streams from the CARES Act. My deepest concern is that we will perpetuate the bad habits that have generationally been ingrained in school systems that need transformation, not complacency. And reinforce behaviors by financially incentivizing underperformance. And to extend our healthcare analogy, it would be like seeing doctors getting more resources, financial or otherwise, to complete surgeries where their patients continue to get sick and die. However, the silver lining to all of this is the fact that there are thoughtful leaders who are thinking about ways without the complicated bureaucratic red tape that often suffocates innovation in education spaces. I stumbled upon the fascinating and compelling argument for improving high schools from Stanford children that had me thinking. They have identified through their center of high school success seven specific ways for high schools to create the change that we all realize is necessary by uncomplicating it and making it very clear what you could do. What is equally as compelling as the seven things in the article is the fact that those seven things that I will detail in a second are relatively simple to implement and more impactful than the complex algorithms we in education sometimes like to cook up. These seven things that the Center for High School Success have identified create a pathway forward that only illuminates how far we need to go, but more importantly, shines a bright light on what is possible. The first of which is the idea of simplifying the high school schedule, implementing a four by four schedule that allows ninth graders to adjust to their environment, create more space for deeper learning. According to the Center for High School Success, ninth graders are three to five times more likely to fail a course than students in any other grade. And students across all achievement levels experience a decline in GPA from eighth to ninth grade. They also suggest starting a ninth grade success program allows ninth graders to really ground in what it means to be a successful student, person, human, in a new environment. The third of which is the idea of providing a summer bridge program for all ninth graders who are entering high school. For all rising 10th graders this summer, spending more intentional time for the kids who might have lost along the way this past year and or transitioning to a new space. They also suggest to create spaces for competency-based credit recovery. They highlight the importance of thinking about providing kids the opportunity to make up and master the skills that they might have failed 
previously without focusing on all of the content, but just on the areas in which they need improvement. The fifth gets at closing the digital divide by finding money and resources that are coming from the CARES Act or other places to provide laptops to every student and ensure every student has connectivity from their home. We know that a lot of our work is moving to the digital space, so providing our kids the tools that are necessary to be successful. The sixth is to provide a highly intensive tutoring program to accelerate learning. This means spending more time, energy, and resources to push harder, to give spaces for urgent learning versus just easy learning. And lastly, but definitely not least, we have just experienced some of the most traumatic and trauma-inducing experiences that we, this period of time in our country, have seen in a long time. The combination of COVID-19 pandemic of racial injustice. The very fact that we have been apart from each other just doubles down the importance of supporting the well-being of all students, which is our seventh recommendation. So finding ways to expand support for students to ensure their well-being, safety, and approach to life. If you take those seven things, you lift them up, you, you'll see seven different avenues to approach high school differently, using funding in a different way to get outcomes for kids that is not complicated, but essential. The question will be, as we look at educational practice in the history of our country of how we approach spending money towards programs, make you think, will we spend it the right way? Will we ensure those resources reach the kids who need it the most? I can't help to think on the night of the NFL draft where teams are making big investments in athletes to produce on the field. Makes me think about the money that goes into making sure these athletes are successful for their franchises ranges in the billions of dollars like it does in education. Different though, in education, we spend a lot more time trying to figure out how to spend the money versus in the NFL, they figure out how to spend the money well. And if they don't spend the money well, they think about ways that they need to cut, move, make better decisions so the product on the field is better. My hope is the same for education in this moment after a year in which we've been sitting in our homes and trying to figure out a way to get out of a pandemic and realize that racial injustice is real. Here is this opportunity and funding to change the way that we educate our kids and realizing that it's not about how we spend the money. It's how we spend the money. Well. I don't know who needs to hear this this week. But my message is pretty straightforward. Fail fast. Yeah, that's right. Fail fast. I was watching a TikTok video of one of my favorite ESPN analysis, Maria Taylor. And she was talking about a number of things and one of which that stuck to me. 
the idea of failing fast. And as an educator, especially a black educator, I struggled with the idea because we're forced so many times to be perfect all the time and always be on. And therefore, I often found myself making sure that I did everything as close to right as possible. I took fewer risks. I asked fewer questions and resistance to the appearance of being a failure was prevalent because I was so fearful of the repercussions. I often worried myself that I wouldn't land a job or get a second chance. But there came a point that I realized that we have to be okay with not having the right answer all the time. As long as we constantly in pursue the right one. So if that means we have to fail a few times trying out new things, so be it. We will all be better off because we have tested out our thinking, had a chance to see what works and what doesn't work, learn from it, and move on. It is times where We dwell in the negativity of our stagnation of the status quo, where we get stuck in a failed experience, loss or miss opportunity. A fast, unrelenting world that we live in moves at a pace of a tweet. We cannot afford having you or anyone dwell on what should have happened when we should already be on to what is happening next. So today, I say to you, when you fail, fail fast. Move on. Because success is waiting for you on the other side. Well, family, that is it for this week's show. We're so glad that you continue to rock with us and enjoy the conversation. We will spend next week diving a little bit deeper into education through the lens of how politics impacts the way that education is served in this country. In the meantime, you could follow me on Twitter at D Hardy Jr. on IG made by one change or check out our website at madebychange.org. And as always, thank you so very much for being a part of this conversation and keep coming back as we continue talking about the importance of our people understanding the inequities that exist and realizing that we need to do more to make sure that people aren't left out and taking actions to make sure that people are more than just penciled in. See you next week.